Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your world. Thank you for uh, being able to see the correspondence between your word and the world around us. Lord, we um, um, commit our lives to you. We thank you that you're sovereign. You give us your grace. Thank you for giving us ministries. Thank you for being our Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, for the streamers last night, I understand that there was a streaming problem and that you weren't able to see uh, Mount St. Helens explode. And uh, so, uh, and, and we need a little uh, wake up here. So uh, I, I can begin by showing uh, the before and after shot. Let me see if I can do that. Okay, uh, before, remember Mount St. Helens before, 9,377 feet tall, uh, before May 18, 1980, from exactly the same spot after the eruption. It changed its whole profile. Um, one half cubic mile of summit slid away, largest landslide in recorded history. And it changed the whole landscape, deposit up to 600 feet of deposits in the foreground. And there's the... Uh, there's the gigantic horseshoe-shaped crater photograph from what's called Johnston Ridge. Okay, let's see what happens here. Simulation, the first 50 seconds. Okay, it starts out earthquake, magnitude 5.1. As the volcano collapses, the rock slide is developed starts to become agitated and it becomes fluidized and it makes this rock avalanche. It's like, it's like a snow avalanche, but it's a rock avalanche. And it's moving at 100 miles per hour. Then behind it is a steam explosion, super hot liquid water flash to steam, and then the uh, jet comes from the nozzle of the volcano, supersonic blast, overtops the... Uh, debris avalanche and knocks down and toasts the forest. That's uh, that's the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Okay, is that is that okay, everybody? Okay. Okay, uh, tonight I'd like to talk to you about signs of the day of the cross. Uh, what happened on history's most momentous day? And I'll, uh, I'll give you my impressions, or some of my impressions, and um, I know I'm like uh, delivering coal to Newcastle. Okay, here I am, a, a geologist, talking to theologians about their favorite text of Scripture, and... Um, but I would really appreciate your peer review of what I've done or thinking about doing and or how I perceive the day of the cross. You give me your impressions, and uh, I know we can all learn together from this. Uh, what happened on history, history's most momentous day? Um, consider the uniqueness of that day, and I imagine many of you gentlemen and uh, uh, ladies can quote these scriptures. 
uh, seen and visioned by prophets, Abraham, David, Isaiah. Seen and visioned by prophets. Abraham is 2,000 years before. Okay, David's 1,000 years before. Isaiah's 700 years before. Uh, Prophets seeking to know what person or time. Interesting, isn't it? They they uh, they they earnestly pursued these matters and were wondering what was going on there. First Peter one announced three years before by John the Baptist, John one twenty nine. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then um, it's when God dis- disclosed the priestly role of Christ. In God's plan, how's that for a, a geologist to uh, 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 say something like that to you guys? Okay, but I like the uh, you know that that's really cool that uh, everybody wasn't expecting the priestly role, uh, and but the priestly role of Christ in God's plan, and then uh, it's things into which angels long to look. Also, First Peter. And, um, yeah, angels are really interested in all that, okay? And then, uh, finally, it's when God both spoke and acted in earth history, or human history, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. So uh, that is a unique day, isn't it? And it's probably the most momentous day in all of history, and and, uh, we need to consider the uniqueness of that day. I'm going to try to talk about the... some of the physical ways that God acted, but he also spoke. Isn't it good? Isn't it really good that God both speaks and acts in history? That's that's wonderful. He authenticates himself through natural and communication modes. Love it. Okay, so... 3 p.m. Jerusalem time, April 3, 33 A.D., as priests are sacrificing the Passover lambs in the temple, five extraordinary events occur. Okay, I'm going to talk about the events. The extinguished sun again begins to shine. Sun's been dark, or there's been darkness over the land for about three hours. Christ has been on the cross from nine to noon, it was light. Then the last three hours on the cross, the sun uh, or the sky was darkened, and then that we have a light again as as Christ dies on the cross. The temple veil is torn from top to bottom, and that's interesting. Then uh, the earthquakes, rocks crack, and tombstones are rolled. The moon simultaneously enters the earth's shadow, and then Christ dies on the cross. Interesting, isn't it? I don't know. I'm I'm fascinated by the interaction of this of the uh, what God speaks and how He acts simultaneously. When was the day of the cross? Um, I benefited tremendously from Harold Horner. Uh, do you know who I'm talking about? I read his book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. Oh, amazing book. Okay. 
he tells how he used to believe in the, the crucifixion was in 30 A.D., and then what convinced him it was in 33 A.D. And uh, I've also read uh, Finnegan's book, Handbook of Bible Chronology. I've, I've really been blessed by Finnegan. I, he's a good scholar in my book, in my, in my understanding. But he used to believe that the, the, the crucifixion of Christ was in 30 A.D., and he's uh, revised his, in the second edition of his book, he revised it to uh, 33 A.D. Um, when was Jesus born? He was born during the uh, during the reign of Herod the Great, and I believe the birth of of Christ is about two B.C. Some people say uh, Herod died about four B.C. Uh, there's a typographical error, a copy error in all of the recent versions of Josephus that I think has multiplied the problems with uh, for 4 BC being the death of Herod and death Herod may have survived to about March 1 BC that I believe there's good evidence for that I like Andrew Stedman uh, his book from Abraham to Paul um, it's a chronology book but it's uh, it's about uh, putting things in history and um, uh, it's that that's a good book anyway okay um the the birth of christ somewhere around maybe 2 bc okay plus or minus i believe is good and then um the ministry of of john the baptist luke 3 verse 1 i think is kind of the proof text for me um it says in luke 3 1 exactly when um uh, John the Baptist appeared, and it's during the fifteenth uh, uh, year of Caesar Tiberius, and that's meant to be understood as a particular year. It, it he was not letting anybody have any doubt about it. He was specifying the exact year of John the Baptist's appearance, probably early spring. Maybe he began, and Jesus's ministry started almost immediately afterwards. One of the first things that that happened in John's ministry was he baptized Jesus late, probably late 29 AD. So 29 AD, 15th year of Caesar Tiberius. Okay, now, um, we know that the Passover is, a fr- I believe, the strong evidence that the Passover is on a Saturday, uh, and it's during the reign of Herod, or pardon me, during the procreatorship of uh, Pontius Pilate, 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. We can use um, astronomy software to predict the full moons and when the uh, Saturday Passover would be uh, during that during the 11 years. And during that, there's two there's two Passovers, Saturday Passovers during that uh, period. 30 April 7, 30 A.D. and April 3, 33 A.D. Uh, so it could be Friday, April seven. Uh, pardon me, Friday, April seven, thirty-three A.D. That's the crucifixion uh, day, or Friday, April three, thirty-three A.D. Clearly, Christ died on April three, thirty-three A.D. Are, are you are you generally in, in familiar with what I'm talking about, or in sympathy with it? I I, um, I don't want to offend anybody who who believes in thirty A.D. Uh, crucifixion, but um, 
I'm I'm loving what I'm reading from some uh, some of the chronologists. Jesus dies on a cross, April 333 A.D. I think that's the day of the cross. Matthew's description of the crucifixion, Matthew 27, uh, chapter 27, 45, 51, 52, 54. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, and the earth did quake and rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Now when the centurion and they who were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. I think it's a very appropriate that the centurion, the person who had followed Jesus from the trial, uh, maybe even from the arrest, all the way through the trial, through the uh, through the crucifixion, he's probably the one individual in command of the whole uh, 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 perception of the event of the crucifixion. He recognizes, uh, as this happens, that truly this was the Son of God. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, is there evidence of, uh, for example, the darkness? And uh, it, uh, I'm, I'm starting to learn and read... Uh, Church Fathers, believe it or not. That's, that's good reading material. Uh, some of the commentaries are very interesting. What I was interested in is how did the Church Fathers use uh, apologetics talking to their generation? So 300 to 500 A.D., I'm reading some of the Church Fathers, 200 A.D. Anyway, the Church Fathers, Origen, uh, Tertullian, those, those type of people. Uh, here's, here's one of the quotations. Now, what is interesting is the church fathers used Roman history sources to document that there was darkness during 33 A.D. In the fourth year, however, of Olympiad 202, which works out to be 32, 33 A.D., they they had a fiscal year calendar in the Roman Empire. Uh, An eclipse of the sun happened, greater and more excellent than any that had happened before it. In the sixth hour... A day turned to dark night so that the stars were seen in the sky and the earthquake in Bithynia toppled many buildings of the city of Nicaea. The church fathers quoted Phlegon, Phlegon the, the Roman hist- or Greek and Roman historian, about uh, the, the darkness. Now, it doesn't say how long the darkness lasted, okay? It doesn't say it was on April 333 A.D., and uh doesn't say it was uh, it, around Jerusalem either. It's, it implies it's uh, pretty uh, widespread because you can see stars in the sky, Not whatever that, how, however you understand that. Anyway, it's, it's, but it's a, uh, an excellent eclipse. If you go back to Eclipse software and see if there was a total eclipse of the sun on April uh, or sometime in uh, 32, 33 A.D., there wasn't. Okay, not in not in the Middle East, and so what kind of uh, what kind of phenomena is this? So, and and what is the apologetic value of using these kind of statements? Thallus is also interesting. In fact, Thallus gets into a controversy with one of the church fathers, uh, and um, he he uh, anyway the church and 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 there's a discussion of of, of 
of uh, Thallus, but uh, they, uh, he assumed it was an eclipse of the sun. Of course, and of course, it cannot, you cannot have a solar eclipse on the uh, Passover because the full moon is rising in the sky as the sun is on the other sides. So the moon cannot eclipse the sun. What caused the darkness? <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, not a solar eclipse because it was a full moon. Are you, are you, are you, are you in agreement with that? Okay, I think we got to say absolutely. And uh, these church fathers knew that it was a Passover, and you can't have a, a solar eclipse on a Passover. Okay, uh, something affected the luminosity of the sun. Let, let's start at the sun and work toward the earth. You know there are stars out there that are that pulse on and off. These variable stars. It's possible for a star to go black and then turn back on with light. That that's what that's what it says. But everything we know about the sun is it's not a variable star. Okay, it doesn't turn off and then turn on. Uh, but that is that's a maybe that's a far reach. But maybe something uh, affected the luminosity of sun. Could it be a giant sunspot that surrounded the the sun, making it making it dark? Uh, Matthew and Mark say the sky was darkened. Okay, there was darkness over the land. Luke says there was darkness over the land, and he says the sun was eclipsed. Eclipsos was used there. So uh, what is you know what what is that? The sun was darkened. I think that'd be a good way to say it. Uh, something affected the luminosity of the sun. Okay, possible. How about a passing solar system object between Earth and the sun? Like, say, maybe a comet went between Earth and sun. Could it make three hours of darkness? Possibly. So there, there's, a, there's another one to think about. Um, the, uh, um, the size of this object has to be huge be large enough from the standpoint of the earth to obscure the whole width of the sun. That's possible. A stratospheric dust injection event, something like a comet explosion. In 1908, in Tunguska, Siberia, there was a comet that exploded in the stratosphere, and it doused the stratosphere with dust, and for several days you could read newsprint in in total darkness at, at midnight uh, on the uh, in, from the sky glowing because of this uh, this effect. Anyway, dust uh, could be injected into the stratosphere. Usually, stratospheric dust stays up there a long time, though. When it when it's there, it's it's hard to fall out. How about a tropospheric particle or aerosol, like a desert a dust storm or a volcanic eruption? That could uh, in in the troposphere, or could it just be a bad, a big storm cloud, or something like that? Or how about this? A wall of angels observing at a distance. Wait, God could have said what? No angel, none. No angel closer than 100 kilometers. No angel's going to do this uh, this redemption event. It's going to be uh, uh, him only, the, the sacrifice of the lamb. So the angels line up at 100 miles uh, above the uh, 
above Jerusalem watching the the cross, and uh, they're ready to come down if he calls for them. But it, it's an angel uh, angel free event, uh, or something else. Okay, during the Middle Ages, there was uh, a lot of general agreement that it was uh, some kind of uh, miracle event that didn't have a natural explanation. But uh, these are all possibilities that you might want to consider. Nobody knows for sure. Okay, if I'm right about the earthquake at the cross and that there's there's sediment in the bottom of the lake, uh, Dead Sea, um, maybe you could find atmospheric particles that were obscuring the sky. So that could be a test of what caused the darkness. But nobody knows for sure. Okay, in uh, uh, the the, rab- the rabbinical writings, especially the Babylonian rabbis uh, after 70 A.D., uh, these uh, these Jewish authors talk about what was going on there 40 years before the temple was des- uh, destroyed, the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, 70 A.D. is when it was destroyed. So back about 30, 33 A.D., what was going on there? And they reflected on it, and they they tell their perception of the of the events before the destruction of the temple, 40 years before. And uh, they tell about trouble in the temple, and then they tell about omens, and they tell about the trouble as some type of uh, thing that maybe God is expressing Himself to them. Troubled in the temple, uh, four things you might want to think about. Uh, the lintel of the temple, there's a discussion of the lintel. That's this uh, bar right here, uh, the east-facing temple. And um, that's where one of the veils hung from. The temple veil could have been that one. There was also a second temple veil between the Holy of Holies and that outer uh, court, and uh, so which veil is being described in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Um, the veil was torn from top to bottom. Uh, it's interesting. It just says the veil was torn. It doesn't tell you the meaning of what it was. It, it's just described there. And it was torn from top to bottom. That, that has uh, uh, some very interesting uh, connotations to it. Uh, the the rabbis also talk about trouble in the temple doors, trouble in the temple doors. They don't talk about the the um, uh, the curtain of the or the veil of the temple, but they talk about the temple doors. It it, it it's stated in one place that the temp, one one morning they looked at the temple doors and they saw the temple doors were sprung open. And then uh, the description is how many Levites it took to close those those very tall, heavy metal doors. And so the the trouble in the temple with the temple doors, and it uh, it's significant. And then there's trouble with the Sanhedrin building. Okay, right over here is where the Sanhedrin met. Okay, in a very privileged place. And about 33 A.D. afterwards, they stopped meeting there in that very privileged place, the ruling council of the Jews, and they went to the marketplace. That's my understanding. And they, a common place, a place with not 
without much prestige and honor. Why did they leave the, the privileged place next to the temple and go over there? Maybe there were some structural problems with the building that uh, they normally met in. Okay, trouble in the Sanhedrin building. And then uh, events uh, interpreted as omens. There's other things happening with the sacrifice system and some of the um, uh, the, the, the uh, collection of trinkets after. And they were interpreted as, as some kind of omen. And so the, the, the common thought among uh, uh, rabbis was, hey, did God leave the temple about that time? What was going on there? And so it, it's, it's just a, a memorable time as they, they look back from after 70 A.D., the uh, temple was veil was torn. That's the gospel version. The rabbi version is what? The doors were closed or were open and needed to be closed. In other words, the Jewish version is we we by our own strength kept God in His box. Okay, but the the Christian view, okay, cause the three gospels say that the veil was torn from top to bottom. Uh, no, uh, no rabbi was involved in, in, or Levite was involved in that. Uh, God got out of the box. Okay, that's the, that, that's the interesting thing. Okay, any, uh, let's see. So, uh, my thought is, could the earthquake have damaged the lintel of the temple? Okay, the lintel of the temple standing up there and the curtain has to hang from it. It's a, it's a, a thick fabric uh, kind of curtain, my understanding is. Josephus describes it. Is that if that's the curtain that's that's torn, there's another veil inside that that could also be torn. I tend to think it's the external um, veil, the one on the outer uh, part of the temple, because that's the one that uh, that that people could see, and uh, nobody would know that the temple torn a veil was torn. and even gospel writers wouldn't be able to go in there and report it. So it, it seems like that they're, they're saying it in a way that it was visible, uh, and that would be the outer veil of the temple. Okay, something in the curtain or in the lintel could stretch the curtain and perhaps tear the veil from top to bottom. The other uh, pos- uh well, and and at the same time, the pivots of the door, the sockets into which the the doors were sunk, was somehow sprung, and what? The doors could naturally open. Through what? The ripped curtain. Okay, and so the the most alarming thing to the Jewish observer would be, woo, God's God's holy place that's been concealed by the veil and the doors has been breached, and so we need to think that uh, and, and they would think that way okay well I uh, uh, that's my thoughts about the temple veil the temple in Jerusalem during King Herod's day had a huge east facing curtain veil that was suspended on the eastern lintel in front of metal doors making the entry to the holy place the 33 AD earthquake evidently displaced the temple's lintel, tore the curtain, shifted the pivots, the metal doors. Other damage appears to have occurred on the western side of Temple Mount. 
There's been some geophysical surveys on the western side of Temple Mount, and there is some distress in the limestone and some obvious uh, problems in the western part. The eastern part, the limestone bedrock is more stable. And um, so it argues that there's some... uh, there's active tectonic process that could be associated with the site. Okay, the earthquake of 31 B.C. 31 B.C. earthquake is the biggest one. Uh, it's described in Josephus and, Herod, uh, and, and during Herod the Great's reign, and Herod the Great's speech that he gave to his army while the, the, his army was fighting the Arabs in, in 31 B.C. That's recorded in Josephus. And it's it's a it's worth reading Josephus's uh, a, a transcript of Herod the Great's speech, but Josephus says that that in one place ten thousand men of Judah died in this earthquake of 31 B.C., and the uh, uh, another place he says twenty thousand men died. Sometimes Josephus is a little bit. Uh, uh, um, iffy with numbers, but anyway, War of the Jews, Book One, Chapter Nineteen. You can, uh, and that that whole chapter talks about the earthquake. Uh, it's a uh, obviously a very severe earthquake. Okay, the rupture length of the earthquake can be discerned by trenching the fault, the Jericho fault, running along the western side of the Dead Sea, up through Jericho and on up toward Galilee, that fault is obviously the active fault because you can see the rupture on it. And the rupture length's 110 kilometers, along which there was active displacement along the fault surface. Now, those of us who are are geologists and, and we look at faults after the earthquake think, wow, 100, 100 kilometer long, uh, 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 rupture uh, zone along the Jericho Fault, that's a big earthquake. Okay, when you say 100 kilometers uh, uh, on, a, on, on the length of a, of a strike-slip fault like Jericho Fault, you would normally think about magnitude 7 earthquake. And a magnitude 7 earthquake in the Holy Land is really severe. Okay, so uh, rupture length, uh, and, and, and that's been documented in the geologic literature, up to 3.5 meters, more than 10 feet, of dip-slip motion. In other words, vertical motion along the fault in 31 B.C. Um, when, you, when you talk about how much the actual displacement is in the fault, that also is, is related to the size or strength of the earthquake. When you're talking about 20 feet of motion or something like that, then you're up there near... Uh, uh, you're you're in definitely magnitude seven, something like that. Okay, it's been estimated to be magnitude seven point two, on the basis of the rupture length, the the displacement amount of displacement along the fault, and then some disturbances to Dead Sea mud. The largest quake in the Dead Sea region in the last two thousand seven hundred years. There was an earthquake that was probably bigger back about the time of Uzziah, king of Judah, and that's called, we called it Amos's earthquake. Amos's earthquake over 2,700 years ago, that's the uh, probably a magnitude 8 earthquake, but 31 B.C. is magnitude 7. 
Now, the 31 B.C. earthquake sets the context for the New Testament. Say 10 or 20,000 men of Judah died in the earthquake of 31 B.C. Every family would have somebody who died, almost certainly. And, uh, you know, a, uh, a generation after that would be the generation that Christ lived. So every family would have a memory of somebody who was killed by an earthquake. And uh, there was a famine that came five years after the earthquake of 31 B.C., and that's described as extremely severe in Josephus. So Herod, uh, he had to relieve the taxes on the land, and so that's a, that's a significant, uh, uh, obviously a significant event. And so famine, earthquake, and pestilence. Okay, those are what? Parts of the Olivet Discourse, and, and uh, that, those are the things that seem to be signs of the, the Lord's return. And, of course, uh, interesting that the last verse of the Old Testament in Malachi 4 says, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Okay, and so the, 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 the Old Testament ends with a, uh, a threatened earthquake, right? And uh, so it, it, it's no uh, unusual thing to think about what might be happening, you know, in people's minds. So apocalyptic expectations may have uh, dominated the disciples' thinking as they're thinking about the coming of the kingdom of God. Okay, the earthquakes of 33 AD. Do you see that plural, earthquakes? There are three earthquakes. There's an earthquake at the cross, probably February, or probably Friday, April 3, 33 AD, Matthew 27, 51. There's an earthquake at the empty tomb on Sunday morning, April 5, 33 AD. And then what? Acts chapter 4, at the disciples' prayer meeting, okay, uh, they assemble. They're assembled in this building, and the and the whole place is shaken. That's the uh, the language in Acts 4:31. That's got to be the summer sometime of uh, 33 A.D. So maybe one shock and two aftershocks, something like that. Okay, and that's the uh, that that's the perception of the earthquakes of 33 A.D. Qumran. Uh, that's the village where the Dead Sea Scrolls were buried in the Aseans. Uh, 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 village, okay. Um, you know, Qumran looks to me, if I was going to say one, you know, a short line about Qumran, I would say it's an Elijah-friendly city. If if I were Elijah, I would like to go to Qumran because it, it's a one-story structure with a tower in the center so you can look out. And it's in the wilderness, and we know that, that Elijah is not going to come uh, to a... Uh, uh, a big city. He's gonna. He's he, he. He loves being out in the wilderness. So maybe an Elijah-friendly city. Did did were they expecting somebody like Elijah to come along? Yes. Okay. So anyway, but that's where they, they the faith, where faithful Jews copied the scrolls. Okay. And uh, the the mikvah, the ritual baths. Here you see the earthquake damage in the steps over a one foot of displacement here along this. Uh, one segment. It appears to be 31 BC as well that all of this fault is active uh, for 110 kilometers along the Jericho Fault. Jericho Fault runs right underneath uh, Qumran. The Jericho Fault is probably the reason the spring is there. 
Okay, the Jericho Fault is probably the reason that Jericho was a city there because it created the water, the surface expression of the water. So they need a lot of water to be ritually cleansed, and uh, uh, for whatever reason, God put Qumran out of the uh, ritual bath business, okay, by <laughs> doing this. Okay, um, my mom had no doubt about it that she was uh, her son was somebody who loved mud, okay? Uh, I collected rocks, uh, loved mud, when I got to be a teenager, my love for mud changed a little bit. Okay, and then uh, when I did a Ph.D. dissertation, what did I do it on? The smelly, gooky mud of swamps. Okay, I uh, did a Ph.D. dissertation on the origin of coal. Okay, and how coal, uh, the possibility of forming in a swamp. Okay, and so I can say it uh, this way. Uh, the Dead Sea is really a good place for mud. There's Jerusalem. Okay, there's the Dead Sea. And I've studied uh, the mud in five places. Dead Sea mud at Ein Feshka, which is right there next to Qumran, really close to Qumran. Then at Darga, Wadi Darga, that's uh, farther down. Then at Ein Gev, Ein Gev is uh, where David fled from Saul. Uh, the cave's in there. Okay, Wadi Zellum, the major drainage southwest of the Dead Sea, the largest drainage on the west side of the Dead Sea, and uh, that's an area where I spent quite a bit of time. And now I've been over recently on the Lisan Peninsula in Jordan, studying the mud over there. Uh, mud is great. Dead Sea has the world's best mud. Okay, I can argue it. And, you know, there's all those... Uh, uh, all those uh, uh, those health uh, people who say that Dead Sea mud really works for psoriasis and other uh, skin problems. Uh, anyway, uh, I agree with them. It's good mud, really good mud. Why is it good mud? <laughs> There's so much of it around. Uh, Delta on the shore of the Dead Sea, that's the... You can see the gullies going through it. Okay, that's mud. Mud deltas all around. Here's a, uh, a brine drainage pond ruptured its dike and a two-kilometer-wide spillway formed right across uh, on the Lisan Peninsula, and I've been studying the mud there. Boy, that's a, that's, that's a wonderful place to study mud. You spend ages in there. Here's what the Dead Sea mud looks like. Okay, isn't it interesting? It's so layered like that. You can see those lighter colored bands. Those are the mineral aragonite. Uh, it's a calcium carbonate mineral precipitated directly from water. You can see the darker bands running through there. Those are uh, detrital minerals like feldspar and clay, the darker bands. And the dark and light banding makes this stunning kind of appearance. Do you like that? That cool? Okay, why? Because you don't see that in many lakes. Because what? Organisms burrow in the bottom of lakes and ponds, and they churn up the mud, but it leaves the layers there in the Dead Sea mud. So that's wonderful. Uh, and, and it's pristine, uh, undisturbed mud. Okay, look, look, look at that lamination. Each of those, uh, those are millimeter scales there. So 
you got very thin lamination. Okay, and then there are disturbance zones. I talked about that. There you see the disturbance zone, uh, two of them. One right here. See those layers that have been disrupted? And there's another one up there. The layers have been dis uh, there, more, more severe disruption. You have overturned folds. You even have brecciation or breaking of the laminae. So you, you, you immediately know what the material looked like before it was deformed by the earthquake. It was all flat and thinly laminated. And so then you see these, these disrupted zones. What could disrupt those, those zones like that? The only thing you could think of is maybe a huge storm on the lake, you know, that could oscillate uh, the water of the lake or an earthquake. And the, the way these are deformed, the style of the deformation argues that it's a, it's a pop. These have been hit by uh, some type of, of wave. I, I personally believe it's what's called the S wave. Have you, have you ever felt an earthquake? There's a P wave that comes first, then there's an S wave that comes second, and then you have surface waves that are generated, kind of a, a rock in the pond kind of thing. The body waves, P wave and S wave, the P waves are high frequency. The sediment is not tuned to that high frequency. The lower frequency, higher amplitude S waves uh, create the disruption at the sediment water interface in the bottom of the lake. Here's the seismite. The, it's a, uh, that's the formal term for a mud layer which has been deformed by an earthquake. And there's a well-developed seismite. You can kind of get an idea what they look like. Uh, that's two centimeters thick or about an inch thick. So that's, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's important. Okay, the Dead Sea core at the, uh, that was drilled, uh, at Engedi, the Dead Sea core was drilled over 20 feet deep. And there's the upper 20 feet. I drew a sketch of the drill core and the brown layers are disrupted zones, which I believe are seismites, earthquake disturbance layers. And uh, believe it or not, back there about 10 feet down, right there about uh, where it should be is 31 B.C. And then just a matter of a few inches above it in this core occurs 31, uh, pardon me, 33 A.D. So you can get an idea of the roughness, and then we can count some laminae if we, if we make assumptions about summer and winter, uh, maybe... Uh, we, we, we can get um, better chronology. But anyway, that's, the, that's our, uh, our, our earthquake chronology. Amos's earthquake back about 750 B.C. There's an earthquake about 1,400 B.C. Could that be giving of the law on Mount Sinai? How about Sodom and Gomorrah back there about the time of, of Abraham? Uh, here's some other historic earthquakes during the time of the Crusaders. Maybe God was mad at the Crusaders. Okay, and then uh, even even 20th century earthquakes like 1927, uh, that was an uh, an earthquake on the Jericho Fault. So down about 10 feet down, you can see this Dead Sea sediment confirms earthquake chronology of the Bible. How about that for a headline in a newspaper? Okay, my current research project with Logos Research Associates. Okay, uh, I'll show you what uh, mud study is like. This is at En Gedi. This is called En Gedi Beach. Maybe you've been out there. Uh, you, you, you ride a tram down to the shore of the Dead Sea, and you may have gone right by here, maybe 
uh, 100 feet off to the uh, uh, to the left side of this is a paved road, and that's where the uh, the core was drilled. But we have this gully. See this gully right here? It's about 12 feet deep, and it's eroded into the lake floor of 1960 A.D. So 1960 A.D., the, the lake was over this mud delta, and now it's dropped 150 feet, and it's back down there. And in the process of the lake dropping, the creek or the ravine has cut down 12 feet. Okay, here's how we do it. Um, well, we, we get to the study location, and with our GPS, we record the position very accurately. So it's the Engedi Trench that we're going to dig, and it's, uh, it's uh, 414 um, meters below sea level, and it's 11 March 1913. Uh, uh, notice something? I'm not very happy. Okay, usually I'm at, around mud, I'm happy. Okay, <laughs> okay. There's there's where I gotta go down. <laughs> okay, I got. I'm going down into a mud trench, and um, so we we lower a ladder. See the ladder down there? Okay, and then we dig steps down to the lat top of the ladder, and then we go down the ladder to the uh, to the creek. And that creek has got saline water in it. There's biting flies, and then the the side of the of the trench can, or the a gully can collapse, and so you have all kinds of uh, of of good things that might happen to you. Okay, but anyway, that's uh, that's what mud study is like. So there we are. Cut the cut the steps down to the top of the ladder, and then we're down there. What? We're down there over t uh, almost 12 feet deep into the the, the sediment. And that puts us where? That puts us right down there next to 31 B.C. earthquake, which should be obvious and very significant in any trench that we dig that deep. So I can go find 31 B.C., and then what? A couple inches above it's 33 A.D. Okay, there you can see we've, we've, we've dug the side, and you can see the laminated uh, silt and clay. Anyway, that's uh, that's what mud studies like, and uh, you uh, you gotta love mud to do that kind of thing. Okay, uh, around the room, I've passed the uh, a little block of mud. What I did was I took mud, very carefully encased it. Then I uh, went to the lab and I I infused it with epoxy and then hardened the epoxy and made a a rock out of mud, <laughs> that kind of thing. And where's that located? Is that around here? Okay, good. Okay, that that you're, you're looking at is the seismite of 33 A.D. plus or minus five years or so. Okay, and you see lamini above and below it, so it kind of lets you appreciate what that's that's like. Okay, so those mud deltas. This one is uh, Wadi Zellum. Okay, those of you who have been to Masada, just before you turn right and go up the road to the west from uh, Masada, as you're going south on the highway, you before just before you turn is an airport. And that airport is right next to this, a fan. And so, uh, anyway, uh, 
it's on the way to Masada. So um, I remember taking a couple pastors and and showing them the uh, the mud layers uh, of, of 33 A.D. Uh, the seismite and t- t- and showing them where it is and it's very close to where they've been and it's a no-brainer. You can just kind of go find it. Okay, um, there's my wife. There's 31 B.C. right there. This is in Wadi Zellum where we have an active fan delta with a lot of silt coming down. And there's another deformed layer, which I believe is 33 A.D. You can see a little closer there. Okay, you can see what are called recumbent folds and symmetrical folds. The, the style of folding versus the brecciation, like you see in the Engedi sample over there, tells me something about which way it is to the epicenter of the earthquake. So uh, because the deformation is lower at the south end of the Dead Sea than it is at the north end of the Dead Sea, what? The deformation uh, uh, comes from an earthquake that's north, a little bit north of the Dead Sea. You see how that works? So mud, Dead Sea mud, wonderful layers. Jerusalem is there. Okay, Ein Feshka has the mud layer from 33 AD. Darga has it. And Gedi has it. Wadi Zellum has it. Lisan has it. So there's five areas. So, so you can get some idea of the location of the epicenter of the earthquake from it. And then you see how thick it is. It's a, it's a pretty thick layer. To do that, uh, at that distance, if the earth, if the epicenter is in Jerusalem, it would be about a magnitude 5.5 to maybe magnitude 6 earthquake. Uh, magnitude 6.5 earthquakes are usually regarded as killer quakes. They do damage, significant damage to buildings in the epicenter area. And, uh, so it's likely that, that this Jerusalem earthquake of 33 AD is somewhere around the magnitude 6, right in there. Uh, during my life, I've been on the epicenter of an earthquake twice. And what does it sound like? Uh, it sounds, yeah, what was the earthquake at the cross like? Okay, if the epicenter's right there, uh, my experience with epicenter perception of earthquakes uh, might help. Um, in both earthquakes, they were magnitude 3, magnitude 4, when I was standing on the epicenter, um, they um, they appeared. Uh, they sounded to me immediately like an explosion. I was looking around. Did a cannon go off? Did a propane tank explode? Uh, that, that, that's the kind of thing. You feel the concussion of the earthquake. And almost simultaneously, you, you feel the vibration in the earth. And the, the question is, was it an explosion in the sky that vibrated the earth, or is it the earth that's vibrating the sky, creating the, the, uh, the audio uh, uh, sound? Well, anyway, when when the cannon goes off in both earthquakes, then you hear you hear the reverberation of the earthquake leaving your site. Most people's experience of earthquakes is they they feel or they actually hear the earthquake first. You hear the ground flexing, then you feel the P wave, then you feel the S wave, then you feel these rolling waves, and the earthquake waves are stretched out in big earthquakes. Sometimes almost 30 seconds to a minute. So what was the earthquake of the cross like? It, it's, it's a uh, cannon going off, and then you, you would likely hear the 
the uh, reverberation, and it sounds like helicopter blades. Whoop, 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 whoop. So a cannon and then a whoop, 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 whoop sound going, and you hear the, the sound going away from you. And then, and then you look around and you, and, you know, that's the, that, that, that's probably what an epicenter earthquake is like. And I, I'm sure the centurion was stunned uh, when he saw that happen as Jesus died on the cross. Peter's uh, Jerusalem speech at Pentecost to the unruly crowd. How do you like that? Is that is that historical context of Acts 2? Is that good? Okay, uh, the speech, Peter's speech. Uh, this was what was spoken through the prophet Joel. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and that they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and glorious day of the Lord come. And then there's a section there at the end. Peter says, what? To which we are all witnesses. In other words, Peter is saying that we have experienced the you know the the people there uh Pentecost at the temp uh it, right there next to the temple have experienced this uh, the moon it, the moon going to blood the sun to darkness so the only reference to uh, a lunar phenomena the moon is right there now i think uh uh peter uh he's quoting Joel chapter 2 If you go to the eclipse software, you can calculate when the eclipse occurred. It, it occurs, the lunar eclipse, partial lunar eclipse occurs at 3.20 p.m. Jerusalem time, 4th, uh, April 3, 33 A.D. The moon enters the Earth's shadow. Okay, As the eclipse begins, right as Christ dies on the cross, the sun... It, uh, Light is obscured from the moon, and the, but the moon is below the horizon. I can show it to you here on this diagram. There's uh, there's Jerusalem at about three o'clock in the afternoon, as the moon is over here entering the shadow. The sun is on the left side, the moon is on the right. Okay, from that angle, the moon cannot be seen till when till Jerusalem goes into the Terminator here and it becomes evening, night. And uh, that's, what, about 6.30. So when the, the the Pentecost feast, the celebration is supposed to occur, what happens? We have the, we have the moon in, in partial eclipse. A funeral dirge for uh, the feast of uh, Passover. Moon at 7.20, here's what it's calculated to may have looked like. Moonrise at 6.20 p.m., and that's over uh, Mount of Olives there as the moon is coming up. You can calculate that eclipse using the uh, NASA Lunar Eclipse uh, Explorer program. How did people respond to the day of the cross? The centurion said, surely this was the Son of God, the chief priests and Pharisees supposed deception, right? So they went to uh, the Roman government and, and implored them to place a guard at the tomb. The Levites in the temple were probably offended because the doors were open, 
and the veil was was uh, broken. Uh, the women uh, and disciples mourned. Even skeptics admit that uh, evidently the events of that day, like Roman historians uh, and Greek were talking about uh, darkness. I, I suppose that's uh, uh, that's what we're supposed to believe. And then uh, God raised his son from the dead uh, on on Sunday. The church was born by God's spirit on Pentecost. How did people respond to the day of the cross? When God both speaks and acts in history, how do you describe it? Good question. How about spectacular? Oh, I'm sure the uh, uh, the scoffers at the cross who wanted Elijah to come, uh, come down and rescue and, and angels to rescue Jesus, they were they were hoping for a spectacular event. They were really scoffing and probably weren't. Uh, dramatic would that be the way to say it? Uh, there is a drama or a sequence of events that's unfolding. I don't think that's the exact word. Unexpected? Maybe that's a good word. How about this one? Appropriate. Everything there seems to be ar- arranged appropriately to call attention to the uh, the, the special uh, priestly character of Christ's death on the cross. Spectacular, dramatic, unexpected, appropriate. So at 3 p.m. Uh, Jerusalem time, th- April 333 A.D., as priests are sacrificing the Passover lamb in the temple, five extraordinary events occur. The extinguished sun begins to shine. The uh, temple veil is torn from top to bottom. Earthquake, rocks are cracked. Tombstones are rolled away. That magnitude six earthquakes, say. Uh, moon enters the earth's shadow. Christ dies on the cross. Uh, what is the meaning of the the signs? That's a that's an interesting thing, and I, I would say you guys are more qualified than I am to uh, comment on that. The illuminated sun of what? Um, the the sacrifice of God's son, God's son on the cross. Uh, was accepted. It was a time of judgment or mourning, and then uh, as as it was accomplished, uh, God accepted his son's death. Uh, the temple veil torn, a uh, better way to approach God, much better than the old Jewish way. God got out of the box. The uh, A way was made for God to come directly to believers, not without a uh, and Jesus became the high priest of a new covenant. Earthquake uh, has apocalyptic significance, I think, in Matthew's writing. That's why he records the earthquake. Resurrection must occur. The eclipse is probably the Passover's ultimate funeral dirge. Okay, Christ died on the cross with that, and and the eclipse followed, and then the cross itself. Jesus was the Lamb of God. The day of the cross. Why was it history's most momentous day? God both spoke and acted in his earth in history. When was the day of the cross? April 333 AD. What are the five signs of the day of the cross? The sun shines again, temple veil torn, earthquake, lunar eclipse, synchronized with the death of Christ. 
And how did people respond to the day of the cross? Extraordinary diversity of opinion. How do you like that? Okay. And what is your opinion of uh, the day of the cross? Okay. And I'm continuing my Dead Sea research project uh, and continuing to study the, the sediment layers. There's a lot there. Any Okay, any questions, things you want to talk about? Uh, Robbie, do you want to you want to uh, come on up or work? The okay. Okay, I'll give the microphone to somebody else then. Okay, here we go. You got to turn that on, I think. Okay. It's on. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Uh, I've got several questions, but they're all connected, so I'll make them quick. Um, how do you know he died on Friday, April third, thirty-three A.D. Exactly Friday at, uh, at, at three o'clock. He died on the ninth hour, right? right. He's on the on the cross. Uh, how do you know it was Friday? Okay, um, I believe uh, the the reason Harold Horner and Finnegan and those people believe it is because. The, uh, the statements in John that indicate that it's the preparation day for the Passover. Okay. Do we and okay. and I, my, my thinking on that is uh, with Harold Horner. Okay. Because I know uh, there's been a lot of discussion, as, even though church tradition said it was Friday, Good Friday. Yes. Uh, a lot of people tend to hold the view that it might have been a Wednesday or even a Thursday for the three days in the tomb. Three, three days and to, three nights in the tomb. Horner has a chapter on that where he argues that three days and three nights is a figure of speech to illustrate just three days, okay, okay. And it can include, which could include just parts of three days. Okay. I, uh, I, didn't, I encourage you to read that chapter. It, I thought it was well done. Okay. Um, also, did Josephus record this earthquake or the, the, the damage to the temple? Not 33 A.D. Okay. Nope. Was the epicenter of the earthquake in 33 was it in Jerusalem or how close to it Jerusalem? It could be somewhere around Jericho to Jerusalem. I, that, that, that would be my best guess, right in there somewhere. Okay, my last part of the question, was there or was there not an eclipse? Because I thought you said earlier there could not there's have no been no solar eclipse. There's a lunar eclipse. Uh, okay, so could the lunar eclipse then be the reason the sky darkened? No. No. No, because the sun is on the other side okay. of the earth. Thank you. No. And there's no solar eclipse. The, I want, I want the software doesn't okay. record a solar eclipse visible in the Holy Land in 33 A.D. So there, it's it's strike two or strike three there. In other words, it's the the idea of a solar eclipse making the darkness uh, loses. The other thing is a solar eclipse lasts only seven minutes. How long did the darkness at the cross last? Three uh, three hours. Okay, a couple of comments before we, we move on. A um, couple of things to think about. I have been a strong, for many, many years, I was a strong defender of the Wednesday crucifixion. thing to think about is the only person, who, the only scholar or close to scholar who put that in print was William Graham Scroggy in the early 30s. And that's the least held position. One of the reasons it's the least held position is because while it's true that you can have a day of preparation for the 
where the Passover is a high holy day is referred to as a Passover. If he's crucified Wednesday afternoon, then at Wednesday dusk you have Passover begin. It's over with Thursday at dusk. That means Friday's a free day to go to the tomb. Okay, you've got a problem there. Second problem you have is in the Mishnah, the rabbi said any part of a day is a whole day. That's the argument that, that Honer goes to. Yeah. Further evidence of this way of counting, rabbis didn't count things the way we count things, and the ancients didn't either. If you reigned one day in one calendar year, that was your first year of reigning. Any part of a year was considered a whole year. So factor that in. Third thing to factor in is that Jesus finishes the work of the cross, and there could be an argument typologically that if he dies on the sixth day, which is the day God finished his day of creation work, and he rested on the seventh, which is the next day, Shabbat, then he rises on the first day for the new creation. That's an interesting typological thing to think through. So um, just just some thoughts thoughts on that. And I'll come back to you in a minute, Herman. Uh, two questions I have for you. One is related to this chart. And uh, I wanted to know, where is the October 749 A.D. earthquake that destroyed Beichan? I looked for it in the core, and... Um, and it's a big earthquake, but that's earthquakes in Galilee, okay? And yeah, it's the probably centered there. in Golan. Yeah, that, Golan. That's referred and to as Golan. it actually, it there may be a trace of it in there, uh, but I'm giving you the, I'm, I'm showing you the, the, uh, the a dozen or ten the the, the major earthquakes in that core. This is, well. and how far is Engedi from Beichan? What, forty miles? Uh, uh, more than that. Uh, it's not that. No. I, I don't think it's much, but 50 miles at okay, the Okay, uh, you can drive it in 60 minutes with a fast bus driver. Yeah, so okay. you're talking maybe 50 miles, 50, 50 miles. miles. So yeah. that's that's pretty close. Okay, well, okay, for uh, these... I mean, I'm, I'm going to challenge you. I'm just saying, okay, okay. why wouldn't there be a you yep. know, be a marker for that? Uh, there is, uh, it's a trace, okay, okay, in this core. Okay. and um, But I believe Betshan, that earthquake in 749... Also, at Sephoris, that's that uh, the hill with all the knockdown. I think that's 749. Right. So 749, the epicenter is way up there in Galilee somewhere. Yeah, it's probably in yeah. Golan. It's referred to okay, in Golan. some things as a Golan. Okay. But for those of you who've been to Beichan, you know, when you go in, you see all the columns are knocked down, and there's the one column back in the back where they found somebody who had been, you know, the column. We always reenact that as the deacon escaping with the church money. <laughs> and this column fell, and they found a skeleton under it, and his hand is outstretched. And there's a mo- they found a money bag just beyond his reach. So he's trying to run away, mm-hmm. and he got hammered by the column. Okay, I would like for you to go back to your slide where you quoted from, I think you were quoting from Acts 2. I just yeah, wondered. Acts 2. Let me see if I can go back there to find that. Okay, that's... Uh Okay, what's down here? It was it was in in dealing with the lunar eclipse. This one right here, right? Yes, yes. Okay, you Peter's want a peer, you want a peer review? Yes. Your ellipsis leaves out 
what gives us a correct interpretation. <laughs> and I, I would argue that by ellipsizing that, you've misinterpreted the text. Okay. Okay, because what, what, Peter, what Peter says is he's quoting from Joel. Joel, uh, chapter 2, 30 yeah, and 31. Thir, thir, uh, yeah, Joel, and he and says, and what, what Peter says in response to this question, what's going on with these guys, he says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Okay, and we'll take a look at what, what Joel says. Uh, and you have to look at all these things. I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That doesn't happen. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. That doesn't happen. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders. All those are connected, and this is what immediately precedes the day of the Lord. Okay. So you don't have the day of the Lord anywhere related to this, because that's what happens at the end of the tribulation. And so he finishes the quote. The last part of it is, The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he says, I don't know. Okay. Then he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth is a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. So that's what happens before the cross. This man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And then he, then you have a long quote from David. And then you get down to verse 20, uh, 29. But I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb to this day. Verse 30, it goes on and on and on. And you, then he says, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. It's the That's resurrection. That's referring to the resurrection. Okay. Not to... Um, not the signs other wonders. So I would argue this is not, none of this happened. Okay. The only thing that happened. And you think that's the day of the Lord prophecy? Right. Joel. That's a day of the I, Lord I, prophecy. I, in Joel I too. tend to think that way, but it, it's always Im- impressed me. Why? Why did he use that passage? He, he, he's using that because he's saying this is like what you okay. what you're seeing here with the with speaking in tongues because. Nothing that's prophesied in Joel 2 happens in Acts 2. The only thing that happens in Acts 2 is is speaking in tongues, which isn't mentioned. So how is he quoting this Old Testament passage? There's a lot here, but probably it is this is like that. There are a lot of times where you have these kinds of applications Mm -hmm. in terms of use of Old Testament in in the New Testament. So that's my... My critique there on dealing with this lunar, I don't think okay. this is at all related to any kind of lunar eclipse at the yeah, cross. Yeah, the moon turned to blood. Okay. Yeah, I don't all think right. you can get that here. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, comment taken, well taken. In your five places where you played in the mud and the Dead Sea, were your findings consistent in all five of the places? Um, as far I as believe so. I believe I uh, I could see evidence of the earthquake in all five places, of 33 A.D. and 31 B.C. In all five? Yeah. And uh, that piece of uh, 
uh, mud that been lithified for you shows you what 33 A.D. looks like in the northern part. Okay, it's the 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 uh, impact wave from the earthquake was very strong, and it brecciated those uh, laminate and made a a mixed layer, a homogenized kind of uh, layer. Okay, has everybody seen that? It's been passed around. Okay, over on this side, you guys need to see it. Okay, so, yeah, let's go over to the... Uh, okay, yeah, and, and I'll, I'll keep that up here next to the sword so nobody... Uh, uh, but don't use the sword to cut it. I just have another uh, critique for you. After learning a little bit about your wife and then seeing her picture, you married up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, my wife likes mud. <laughs> I retract. <laughs> That's just a comment of, that Robbie mentioned about Graham Skogie. He, in in his argument for Wednesday, he also makes a point that there were so many things that had to be done between the crucifixion and the resurrection that it couldn't have been done. You don't think it works? Okay. Okay, another question. Dan? Yeah, just... Is there any kind of frequency or pattern to these uh, uh, earthquakes and volcanic events that you've seen over history? Um, I think slight decline with time, and you can even see that in the core. Looking at uh, um, you know the big the biggest earthquakes are back there, uh, two over two thousand years ago. In other words, the, uh, we're, we haven't experienced an earthquake like Amos's earthquake, seven fifty B.C. or thirty one B.C. Uh, Jericho earthquake, Herod's during Herod's time. We haven't experienced that kind of earthquake. Uh, in the last 2,000 years. So that uh, that shows you that we're in kind of a little bit of a lull, okay? So you could argue, it, it'd be hard to argue like how Lindsay would be that there's an earthquake sign being accomplished in the present uh, earth, okay? And the, 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 the Dead Sea should, uh, uh, I think, be a good example because if, if we're going to have a sign earthquake sign express itself, it should be obvious in the Dead Sea mud. Okay, and I, I don't see that, uh, an increase uh, in intensity or frequency of, of those earthquakes. But globally, there doesn't appear to be a, a strong increase in frequency or intensity, like some of the, of the prophecy people have said, you know, comes from their understanding of Olivet Discourse. Any other questions? Are you referring to globally or just in the region of Jerusalem? Both, okay. both. Um, it doesn't. It globally, I, 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 I shared a, a diagram showing uh, a 35-year cycle in earthquake general tendencies to variation, and but it's a generally declining in the 20th century. So the 20th century global data shows what appears to be a slightly declining trend. Which, from my point of view, the flood was in history thousands, several thousand years ago, 
it's what? Uh, we're living in the dying tectonic phase after the flood. That, then the Second Peter 3 account, you know, that's the, uh, that's the, the, the world we live in, and then we're waiting for the fire next time. Flood last time, fire next time. All right, great. Well, we're going to close out the conference. We're going to sing one more hymn before we do so. Steve, thanks a lot. Once again, just fabulous. You know, I I love having Steve here and and love being on the canyon with him because we just talk talk about all these kinds of things. We have said, you know, it's really great to see so many of these different things. You don't have that that kind of uh, expertise like with Charlie and meteorology to bring that that frame of reference to the text is is uh, always extremely helpful and I just really appreciate Steve and all of his his ministry and the work tonight just just tremendous all the details related to what what took place at the time of the cross so anyhow Alan's going to come up and we're going to sing uh, my country tis of thee stand together number 571 and then I'm going to ask uh, Dan Ingram, we haven't heard from Dan. I'm going to ask Dan to come up and close us out in prayer. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we've had this wonderful time together in this conference. We're thankful for those who have brought those presentations to us. And we're thankful for the messages that they contained. We pray, Father, as we leave here, that we will remember the messages, the uh, the source and the interpretations and the applications for our lives. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to come together as a a body like this realizing the bond we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that as we look at the text of Scripture, we know that we find truth there. But we also know that we see it around us in your creation. And we're thankful for Steve as he has expressed that to us in a very interesting way. Again, Father, we pray for Uh, this nation. We're thankful that it was established on biblical principles. And we realize that that is the source of our blessing. We pray that we would return to those sources, that fount, and that we would once again realize that our blessings are not ours just because we are America, just because of our resources, but because you have blessed us in such a great way. And we pray, Father, that we would appreciate those blessings, but we would also appreciate the source. And we ask for your blessing as we go home, home to our individual bodies of Christ, that we might, Father, glorify you in what we do and say. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.